Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, August 8th, 2023, the 930th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Now, before we get started, I just want to say that I hope this sounds okay. I feel like maybe this room is a little more echoey than you're probably used to. I'm recording from many different places at this point, but I think it's coming in clearly. So I hope that the listenability is acceptable and we will be normalizing this situation within the next couple of weeks. Now, on Saturday, we were talking about how it 
is apparently acceptable to bend the rules in whichever way is necessary if it's determined by the people who make the rules and the people who enforce the rules that the situation in which they've decided to bend the rules represents an extreme case. They get to choose when exceptions will be made. And at that point, they are able to violate whatever morals, whatever principles, whatever standards and whatever norms they choose in order to achieve the appropriate outcome in that particular extreme case before reverting to the status quo ante where the rules and norms and standards and morals are all enforced again until the next instance of an extreme case. And so we talked about the situation in Russia with Ukraine, the civilian ship that was in that instance considered a military target and then attacked with unmanned drones. We talked about how that might escalate an already bad situation and that that escalation could lead to nuclear war that medical journals were warning us could result in devastating health consequences up to and including the whole world being destroyed. Now, normally you wouldn't want to provoke an event like that, but this is an extreme case. And if Russia is somehow able to defeat Ukraine, well, then the world is going to fall apart or so we are told. And then we had the extreme case of a U.S. president, quote unquote, weaponizing the justice system to go after his political opponent and make sure that that political opponent could never retake the office of the presidency. And that while we've been raised to understand that that's the sort of thing that would only happen in a banana republic, in an authoritarian dictatorship, this is an extreme case. Donald Trump represents an extreme case. In fact, everything about Donald Trump represents an extreme case, including and especially his supporters. And because there is always the presence of this extreme case, it's actually not only acceptable, but required to treat Donald Trump and his supporters like the exceptional and serious threats they are. And once you've done that, well, then any treatment we can conceive of is totally warranted. It wouldn't be like that normally, but this is an extreme case. Normally, that would be reserved for history's worst dictators and worst regimes. In fact, using the justice system and the legal system to silence and even imprison political opponents would be the leading sign of an authoritarian system, of an illegitimate dictatorship in a banana republic, but just not in this instance because orange man bad and Trump and his supporters are a threat to democracy. In fact, just yesterday, the Daily Mail reported on Nancy Pelosi worrying that if Donald Trump comes back into the picture, the country may well end. When asked about the potential of Trump getting a second shot in the White House, Pelosi told New York Magazine, don't even think of that. Don't think of the world being on fire. The California Democrat added in the article published on Monday, it cannot happen or we will not be the United States of America. If he were to be president, it would be a criminal enterprise in the White House. That is quite a statement considering that the man we're all being told is a real president in the White House right now is 
legitimately running a criminal enterprise and has been for decades, and that Nancy Pelosi is part of that. So if you go over to the piece in New York Magazine, The Intelligencer, the headline is The Pelosi Factor. Trump's longtime antagonist played an essential role in his historic indictment. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let's get the main points here. Ultimately, however, you cannot tell the story of Trump's historic indictment without Nancy Pelosi. It was the then Speaker of the House who insisted that there be a congressional inquiry following January 6th, and it was the work of the select committee she fashioned that finally appears to have spurred a reluctant Justice Department to action setting in a more intense phase of criminal scrutiny focused on Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The resulting indictment closely tracks the select committee's work and findings, presenting a factual narrative that traces, almost identically, the evidence presented by the committee of a sophisticated, multi-pronged effort by Trump to remain in power that culminated in the mayhem at the U.S. Capitol. I knew on January 6th that he had committed a crime, Pelosi told me late Friday afternoon, squeezing me in for a roughly 30-minute interview at the tail end of a remarkable week in Washington. And I'm going to skip around a little bit, but this article presents some really interesting statements from Pelosi and the narrative of January 6th. Pelosi said she knew from the beginning that in order for the committee to succeed, it could not operate in the way of typical committee hearings, and she worked to ensure that the members shared that perspective. When people were accepting the offer to be on the committee, they knew that it wasn't going to be every five minutes that they'd be speaking, she said. It would be part of the plan to present a narrative for the public to understand. In the end, Pelosi told me, the quality of the membership, the effectiveness of the staff, and the excellence of the presentation made it one of the best presentations in the history of our country. And she's being remarkably clear here. The point of that improperly formed committee, again, the formation of the committee violated Congress's own rules. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy was not allowed to apply a full slate of Republicans, nor was he allowed to choose the Republicans who were on the committee. You'll remember the only two were Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. But the point, according to Nancy Pelosi, was to present a story for the public to understand what happened. And as I said last week, the committee essentially just presented the story of the mainstream media in their coverage of the very violent insurrection. The article goes on. I asked Pelosi whether during this period she had ever tried to speak with Attorney General Merrick Garland, President Biden, or anyone in the White House about making sure the Justice Department was properly investigating Trump's conduct. No, she quickly responded, telling me that she did not think it was appropriate for her to try to influence the department's work behind closed doors. I did want them to pay attention, and I hope that we got their attention, Pelosi told me. That's why the presentation, the narrative, had to be the way it was, she explained, so that the public record could be as clear and credible as possible. We couldn't have people like the Republicans wanted to put on who would be disruptive, disruptive, disruptive. Too much was at stake. She's saying flat out that in order for the DOJ to be able to prosecute Trump, 
They needed the public to go along with it and be okay with it. And therefore they needed to make a presentation to the public and present a compelling narrative that would capture people's attention and their hearts and minds. And they would understand that it was an extreme case. And so the DOJ was totally justified in pursuing Donald Trump. And if Joe Biden's DOJ failed to go out and pursue Donald Trump, then it would actually be a sign of their weakness and fecklessness not to act like that third world banana republic, illegitimate dictatorship we've all been taught to understand throughout our education. We've been informed by culture and society, but all of that must go by the wayside in order to keep Donald Trump from ever being president again. It's an extreme case. So what we need to do is present a story to the public that will override all of their moral preconceptions that we helped inculcate because we know we need to pursue Trump through the Justice Department and legal apparatus, but we can't have the people getting upset about it. And then the comments referenced in the Daily Mail article. I asked Pelosi how she thought this would all end. And she struck a tentative but cautiously optimistic tone. As we always say, it depends on what happens at the end of the day, but you have to determine what the end of the day is. Yesterday was the end of a day. The former president of the United States was arraigned, and that was a triumph for the truth. The indictments against the president are exquisite, Pelosi added referring to both the latest set of charges and the earlier federal indictment over Trump's hoarding of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and his subsequent efforts to obstruct investigators. They're beautiful and intricate, and they probably have a better chance of conviction than anything that I would come up with. As for the prospect of a second Trump term, Pelosi immediately recoiled when I brought it up. Don't even think of that, she told me. Don't think of the world being on fire. It cannot happen, or we will not be the United States of America. If he were to be president, it would be a criminal enterprise in the White House. And you are welcome to take Nancy Pelosi's comments in any way you choose, of course. But if you ask me, that sounds a whole lot like the Hillary Clinton approach at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 where the attempt was made to keep Trump out of office through the selling of a false but damaging public narrative and the same public narrative being advanced in the election period continued into the actual presidency in order to undermine and subvert a duly elected president of the United States. Normally, that would be a bad thing, but again, it's an extreme case. So Nancy thinks the indictments are beautiful and intricate and exquisite. And perhaps that is what she wants the public to believe. I mean, she's saying flat out they need the public to believe a certain story in order to be okay with the fact that every prior norm and standard has been violated. The public needs to agree that an extreme case has arrived in order for them to be prepared to forgive everything. Because if they don't believe it all, then pursuing Trump in this manner is actually gonna backfire on the regime. 
rather than looking like they're protecting democracy, our democracy, against the awful threat of Donald Trump and his supporters, they're going to end up looking like the bad guys, like the people we've been taught about for our whole lives. They're going to exhibit all the signs and symptoms of that illegitimate dictatorship, that banana republic. And if that happens, they're kind of screwed. So the project here from the regime's perspective is they need to figure out a way to disqualify and perhaps even imprison Donald Trump. Otherwise, Donald Trump is going to become president again, even though Joe Biden beat him last time by something like six or seven million votes, a massive majority and a huge electoral college win as well. And Joe Biden has done a fantastic job as fake president, according to them. But if somehow we fail to disqualify or imprison Donald Trump, then Donald Trump is going to become president again. Sure, the country hates him and everybody believes that he is actually the authoritarian dictator, maybe even a fascist, maybe even a Nazi. But if we don't disqualify or perhaps even imprison him, well, he's going to become the president again, even though he's so extraordinarily unpopular everywhere. Even Ron DeSantis supporting Republicans know that Donald Trump just cannot win the swing states. And that's why we agree that the Democrats need to disqualify and maybe even imprison him to make sure he's not the next president. Would that normally be the sort of thing? That would violate our norms, yes. But in an extreme case like this one, we simply don't have a choice. Now, another of the norms that we've developed over time is that you're not allowed to call people Nazis on television except in extreme cases designated by members of the regime. People are required to get official approval before ever comparing anything to Hitler or Nazis unless you have the you can compare things to Hitler and Nazis card. And those are only given out to the good people. And once you've gotten that card, well, you don't even need to use it sparingly. You can use it whenever you want. Call Donald Trump Hitler. No problem. Has he done any of the things Hitler's done? No but if you look at his words and actions in a certain light and you think about what that might become in the future, if Trump and all his supporters are exactly as terrible as you believe them to be, well, then maybe it could lead to something Hitlerian or maybe something reminiscent of the Nazis. And for most standard issue villagers on the Uniparty left, that was more than enough. They wanted some reasons to be able to say all of the worst possible things about whoever they were told were their political opponents, because as usual, they wanted to seem like really good people without actually doing anything. So we were told that Trump and MAGA were all Nazis or just about Nazis or in any case fascists. And of course, domestic terrorists, white supremacists, Christian nationalists. It didn't matter. And those same people saying that happened to support the global regime throughout COVID and they continue right to this day while the global regime does these sorts of things. Censorship and propaganda, segregation, forced medical experimentation, eugenics in order to one day create superhumans. And if you think that's not the transhumanist agenda, why haven't you understood what the transhumanist agenda is yet? 
They're not trying to make people healthier. Why would the regime responsible for COVID and the COVID response be concerned about making anyone healthier? They've illegally changed laws outside the bounds of the Constitution. They've staged false flag events to stoke hatred. They have stolen elections. They have persecuted their political opponents. They have created ethnic division and discrimination and have tried to make that allowable, acceptable, and actually necessary in law. They have tried to rewrite history. They've tried indoctrination and re-education. They've changed the words in our language. They're moving all the decision-making power in society to their own government, bureaucracy, and administration. They're creating food shortages. They have work camps. They literally support concentration camps in China, in the Xinjiang province. And if there is some difference between all of that and bringing in illegal aliens to put them to work in factory farms and housing them in complexes next to the factory farms, I'm not sure there's a great difference there either. And they are even legitimately funding a Nazi army in Ukraine right now. While, by the way, debunking and denying the truth of that statement, despite the eight decade long history of Nazis in that region in Ukraine, the ideological history of that region, and the fact that regime politicians are on record and regime media outlets are on record describing that history and describing the training of those Ukrainian Nazis by the CIA. But nonetheless, because we are the bad guys, we're not allowed to say any of that. We're also not allowed to critique them for denying all of these Nazi things as they happen in the real world right now. I was told that denying all of this stuff was actually bad, but apparently that was just me following a norm and a standard. This being an extreme case, all bets are off. Now, Trump attorney John Loro has been popping up on television basically every night to make the public case for Trump about the injustices of the Department of Justice and the political persecution of Donald Trump at the hands of this illegitimate dictatorial regime. And he's been making quite a bit of news, and the message he is delivering is being spread far and wide. And perhaps that's why he keeps being sent out to talk to the public virtually every night. Here he is on CBS on Sunday. Campaign yesterday called this uh, reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 1930s, the former Soviet Union, and other authoritarian dictatorial regimes. I think what all Americans are concerned about... But comparing this to all, the Nazis... All Americans are concerned about this, the, the criminalization of free speech. When I'm in that courtroom, I'm not going to be representing only the President of the United States. I'm going to be representing every American that wants to speak freely because this is the first time that the Justice Department has been turned on free speech. But comparing it to wrong. the Nazis, you think that's a good move? Listen, what we're dealing with right now is a Justice Department that's outside constitutional bounds, and everyone's entitled to raise that issue. So John Loro is addressing the point that Donald Trump is now being pursued by the Department of Justice under threat of imprisonment for publicly challenging 
the results of the election, something apparently we are no longer allowed to do. And Laura was pointing out, as have many others, that being forbidden to publicly challenge the results of an election is something that you would only see happening in a third world banana republic, an illegitimate dictatorship. It's the very opposite of what we were told our country was all about. It was the opposite of what we were told we had in this country. And CBS being CBS, there's no point in addressing that claim. I mean, what are they going to do? Argue? Try to present a different version of what's going on? Nancy Pelosi said it herself. They're trying to tell a story. They need the people to believe that everything they're doing is actually worth it and justified in this extreme case. CBS is more than happy to go along with that same logic. This is an extreme case, but it's not like that's one of our principles. You see, we would never say that we should do all of these things on a regular basis. What we're saying is that this is an extreme case. Therefore, our principles demand that we violate our principles. And yes, we are violating our principles in this extreme case, but you can't hold it against us, especially not if you're going to go so far as to compare what we are doing with what the Nazis did just because it's the same exact thing. I mean, if you keep this going for too long, people might start wondering, are we of the same ideological and bloodline lineage of those very same regimes from the 20th century? Are we supposed to think about the fact that so many of these powerful American corporations, including ones directly linked to the World Economic Forum right now, were also linked to the Nazis in the 1930s and 40s, and they're still really big companies? And I mean, are we supposed to think about how Nazis were actually brought to America so we could capitalize on their understanding of the science and they can't possibly want us thinking about the fact that so many of the people involved at the highest levels of various governments all across the world are literally descendants of people in that very same Nazi regime. Yeah, I guess I can see why they don't want us thinking about any of this. And so John Lauro talking about how Donald Trump is being pursued over his political speech, his duty as commander in chief, if an election is stolen, is to pursue the theft of that election and let the public know about what's happening. And rather than addressing the chilling effect on speech and the extraordinary impact of violating our norms so radically in this instance... CBS wants to let the public know that this man is now talking about Nazis and that's not okay. We are going to try to make him rescind this comparison because if he doesn't, then the public might actually think he's right. And the public might understand that they're allowed to compare things to Nazis too. And if they start doing that, well, that's going to represent its own extreme case, which would then justify us further censoring those people. I mean, we're warning them right now so that we don't have to go after them later. If they simply behave themselves and stop making accurate comparisons between the current regime and that same regime 80 years ago, we're going to have to censor them and maybe eventually imprison them. And the entire time we will be holding them down saying, 
Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. How in the world did we get to a place where some pudgy little dorks on TV are telling us what we can and cannot say? This really is not the country we were promised, the country we were told that we had. Darren Beatty of Revolver News shared this thread on Twitter yesterday, often excerpting the full article on Revolver.News. He wrote, The charging documents claim that Trump knowingly lied in his statements regarding the 2020 election. On what basis could they determine this? The answer leads us to one of the darkest and most ridiculous elements of the latest indictment. And he excerpts this part of the indictment. Despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months following Election Day on November 3rd, 2020, the defendant spread lies that there had been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. These claims were false and the defendant knew they were false, but the defendant repeated and widely disseminated them anyway to make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger, and erode public faith in the administration of the election. Now, much like Nancy Pelosi, he's pursuing the narrative elements of that post-election period and the very violent insurrection. He is also incorporating as true the official story within the central narrative that there was no widespread outcome determinative election fraud or manipulation. Nothing was rigged. Nothing was stolen. Everything was on the up and up. Sure, mistakes were made. Occasionally machines got a little bit messed up and there was some human error and maybe some people committed some crimes and maybe elections were run under processes created outside the bounds of state legislatures, therefore in violation of the Constitution. And courts have agreed on that already in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But the elections were on the up and up. And despite all that evidence and indeed an overwhelming amount of other evidence, there is no evidence of any of it. Those claims were false. The official story says they are false. The central narrative says they are false. They are false. In fact, if they weren't false, we wouldn't have had a January 6th committee at all and then wouldn't have the January 6th committee referrals presenting all of that narrative as factual, representing the basis for all of these indictments. Don't you understand? All of it was a lie. The fact that this is in a federal indictment of a quote unquote former president is rather astounding. And again, if all of this stuff, this pursuit of Trump, these indictments are simply fake, all good. Then we're just having a different story told to us than the one the media is representing. And that would not be the least bit uncommon. But no one's just going to buy that interpretation out of hand. So it is worth at least analyzing and considering the face value interpretations on all of this as if this is them representing their best case, because it may well be. Now, he's essentially pinning everything on the idea that Donald Trump lied and that he lied knowingly, that the entire enterprise was dishonest and it was all done so that he could stay in power, despite knowing that if he stayed in power, 
he would not be representing the will and intent of the American voting public. He would be sitting there illegitimately, but he didn't care because Donald Trump is an evil narcissist and egomaniac who cares so much more about his self-image than anything else. He doesn't love the country no matter how many times he says it and no matter how often he shows it through his actions. It is not Donald Trump and not MAGA who love America as the constitutional republic it was intended to be. It is in fact Joe Biden and Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi and Victoria Nuland, you know, all the people protecting America as whatever it has become. Jack Smith has written that these claims were false. It is a fact, according to Jack Smith, that these claims are false, therefore everything else. But it is not a fact that these claims are false. And now this entire argument and maybe the entire case hinges on those claims being false. We don't know what kind of judicial environment will be encountered over the course of this process, but if there is a responsible judge there and the process goes as the process should, then there should be proof that these claims are in fact false. It can't just be a necessary acceptance of all those claims as false before moving forward because the claims aren't false. That would be an absolute kangaroo court. If Jack Smith is not required to prove those claims false. Back to Darren Beatty. To say that Trump knowingly lied is not only to dispute his justified questions concerning the election. It is to state that subjectively, privately, in his own mind, Trump actually thought the election was legitimate, that he legitimately lost, but lied anyway. The basis of the DOJ's allegation that Trump believed he lost the election despite his public statements is the fact that VP Pence, senior DOJ officials, and various intelligence agencies told him so. Yes, you read that right. According to the DOJ, Pence, the DHS, the director of national intelligence, and senior DOJ officials are so authoritative that to contradict them is tantamount to knowingly lying because they were quote unquote, in the best position to know the facts. And so what he's pointing out here is an immediate appeal to authority. Donald Trump was told by Pence, DHS, DNI, and officials at the DOJ that Trump lost. And the substance of many of those claims was just simply that those organizations had not found evidence of election fraud. They are all deemed to be in the best position to know, which means they would be then the most authoritative sources to judge that information. And then once you give them the benefit of the doubt that there is absolutely no way they would be lying or misrepresenting the information they had and that their information was full and complete then to dispute them would be irresponsible. You can't say, I believe those people are wrong, despite everything you say about their credentials and how honest they are and how competent they are and how full and complete their information is. You would be irresponsible to ever doubt them. You have to believe that what they say is true because they are in the position of power and knowledge. That is what we are being told should be enough information, enough proof for a sitting president of the United States of America to agree that an election was flawless. The word of some people 
who are deemed to be in the best position to know, despite lacking full and complete information, we must take their word as a statement about the underlying facts. All of the underlying facts must be there in order for this person to say these things. And we have to believe this person because they're in the best position to know. And what are you going to do? Call them a liar? You conspiracy theorist? Donald Trump was supposed to accept this information from authority, despite any other information he would be getting. And again, they can say that these people are in the best position to know Donald Trump as president of the United States of America, the commander in chief of the military, the final and ultimate plenary authority on intelligence in the United States of America. He's in the best position to know because he's getting all the information from everywhere. Donald Trump doesn't have to trust one expert or three experts or 10 experts. It doesn't matter where they're positioned and it doesn't matter how much benefit of the doubt we give them on being fully informed and completely honest. It would be absolutely irresponsible for a president of the United States to take the validity of an election on authority from a handful of agency heads and officials. Isn't it amazing that they are making the argument in full that it should be relatively easy to usurp the American presidency? That is the argument that they're making. If you have five or 10 people say that everything's okay, then you absolutely have to believe them Otherwise, you are threatening to bring down our democracy and should be imprisoned. That's the base level claim here. Back to Darren Beatty. In other words, Trump must have believed his claims of election fraud were false because he was told otherwise by people he should have trusted, like the very same intel snakes who had demonstrably worked to sabotage his presidency since day one. That's one hell of a theory. The DOJ's decision to invoke CISA as an authority is especially outrageous, given this agency was recently exposed for engaging in and then attempting to cover up rampant unconstitutional censorship leading up to the 2020 election. CISA's glaring misconduct was the subject of a major report by the House's subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, and he excerpts part of that report. Although the investigation is ongoing, information obtained to date has revealed that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has facilitated the censorship of Americans directly and through third-party intermediaries. The report also details how, and then there is a bulleted list. CISA considered the creation of an anti-misinformation rapid response team capable of physically deploying across the United States. CISA moved its censorship operation to a CISA-funded nonprofit after CISA and the Biden administration were sued in federal court, implicitly admitting that its censorship activities are unconstitutional. CISA wanted to use the same CISA-funded nonprofit as its mouthpiece to avoid the appearance of government propaganda. Members of CISA's advisory committee agonized that it was, quote, only a matter of time before someone realizes we exist and starts asking about our work, end quote. In response to mounting public scrutiny, CISA scrubbed its website of references to its domestic surveillance and censorship activities. And that is all from the House of Representatives, the subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. According to a definitive report by Mike Ben Cyber, that's Mike Ben's from the Foundation for Freedom Online, 
The founder of CISA, Chris Krebs, doubled and tripled down on the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story. He falsely maintained it was Russian disinfo, but later admitted it didn't matter one way or another. Now the Orwellian absurdity of DOJ's position is clearer. Trump must have been lying in his claims about election fraud because an organization recently exposed for violating the Constitution in aggressively pushing for censorship leading up to the 2020 election told him so. This is an organization led by a man who defended government pressure to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story and didn't care that all of the intelligence community officials were wrong in attributing the hack to the Russians. It is interesting to note that this same ridiculous tactic appears in a civil context in Ray Epps's recent lawsuit against Fox News for Tucker Carlson and Revolver's Darren Beatty reporting on Epps's involvement in January 6th. Epps's lawyers claimed Tucker knowingly lied about Epps because he ignored the pronouncements of authoritative sources like the January 6th committee. You can't make this up. The legal complaint claims Tucker acted with, quote, reckless disregard for the truth, end quote, by citing and amplifying the reporting of Darren Beatty. If you rely on my reporting, this is Darren speaking, you are effectively lying because I'm such a discredited conspiracy theorist. Just ask CNN and the New York Times. And he cites that Ray Epps filing. So once again, what he's pointing out is that you are considered to be knowingly lying if what you're saying conflicts with the official story released through official channels. If they deem a source to be authoritative and you dispute what that source is saying, you are then knowingly lying and can be held legally responsible for any negative consequences in the real world that can somehow be tied and attributed to your knowingly lying by disputing what was said by an authoritative source. And to wrap up with Beatty, this is of course ridiculous. Everyone from the New York Times to the public face of the pipe bomb investigation to the former head of the Capitol Police have affirmed the legitimacy of Revolver's groundbreaking reporting on J6. The strategy described above is both subtle and exceedingly dark and effectively amounts to the government saying that if you pay credence to sources not approved by the regime, you are guilty of, quote, reckless disregard for the truth, end quote, and punished accordingly. Similarly, if you don't take the word of the demonstrable liars in the intelligence community and criminal organizations like CISA, you are guilty of knowingly lying and criminally liable, as in the case of Trump. With this legal innovation on the civil side, in Ray Epps's suit and on the criminal side against Trump, we have descended into sub Orwellian territory in which not bowing to the regime approved experts, no matter how malicious or discredited, will land one in bankruptcy, jail or worse. So we are now being told through official channels that the basis of proof, the way to discern truth and falsity is to find an authoritative source and then ensure through force that no one anywhere disputes what they're saying. And we are being told right now that that only applies in extreme cases, like saying the wrong things about Ray Epps or failing to accept as proof the word of people in government 
when it comes to elections that are quite clearly being stolen in broad daylight with a massive and overwhelming evidentiary base to support that position and no proof whatsoever anywhere in the world that Joe Biden actually received 81 million real lawful American votes. And the truth is they won't even let you check. But again, these are extreme cases, so no one gets to check. We have to accept the word of the authoritative sources. And if not, we can be imprisoned. Indeed, the only way to preserve our norms and standards is to violate them whenever we believe it's necessary. For a few years, it was necessary to censor and stifle any speech that would conflict with the official narrative about how Joe Biden is not only legitimate, he's actually great at his job and he is not a criminal. In fact, he is one of the most decent men to ever exist in American politics. His presidency represents a return to decency, getting the adults back in the room. And the stifling of speech along these lines has been pervasive even among people we are told are society's truth tellers in the mainstream. And so it was rather remarkable over the last couple of weeks to see Joe Rogan begin to break outside of some of that stuff. Now, I've talked about Rogan many times on this podcast. There is certainly a chance that Joe Rogan is executing a narrative operation, an information operation over the course of years in order to slowly wake up those people who would be most difficult to wake up, those people who would take just about the longest Rogan was going to operate at their speed in order to bring everything to a soft landing. And if that's the case, then wonderful. I would love to think that Joe Rogan is a wonderful guy rather than the alternative, which would be a moron who pretends to be willing to have any conversation, but isn't actually that. And instead is just a guy who took $300 million from Spotify and then publicly approved of them censoring people's content. I've remarked many times about how he really has not said pretty much anything about election fraud in nearly three years, probably the most important issue in the country. And if you want to make an argument that it's the currency or that it's child and human trafficking, you have an argument there, fine. But I'm not certain those other problems can be solved until we have legitimate elections again. That's why I continue to think this is the most important issue. And people like Joe Rogan simply have not addressed it at all. With a platform that large, you could be pursuing election fraud hardcore. All of the information that we understand that we have looked into because we bothered to check could have been blasted out there to a massive audience. And would that have gotten him kicked off Spotify? Well, maybe. And then he could have opened up his platform somewhere else. He certainly has the means to have done it. And he has the audience who would follow him anywhere. He has an audience that would pay him under a paid subscription model. And he may well have ended up making more money than he did from the Spotify contract. So outside of him participating in an actual information operation, I'm not sure there are too many excuses for him having avoided some of these truly important discussions for so long. People often credit him with bringing Peter McCullough and Robert Malone to the American public, but that was 
21 months after the pandemic began? And were those the only or the best people worthy of making the case about the problems with the pandemic narrative and the pandemic response? I mean, decide for yourselves, maybe in real life, we will know the answer to that in the course of the next few years. And I hope that we do. And like I say, I hope that Joe Rogan is just perfectly executing his part of an information operation as the person he is. Maybe he was the perfect person to do all of that. Maybe he's doing exactly as instructed and it will have the best possible results. But otherwise... We have a person with the biggest platform in all of media, avoiding the most important topics of our time, topics that if properly addressed, causing a public awakening and mass exposure of the facts on these issues could have changed the course of the country over the last three years. Again, I want to like Rogan and for many years, I liked him a great deal. But if this is just the natural course of events, in his podcast, this is just how things ended up. And it took this long to present these certain cases. I don't know how anyone sees that as good or responsible. That would just be Rogan, like any other mainstream media figure, ignoring all the important stuff in favor of the big check and wanting to maintain his platform. That's not how we maintain the country and maintain free speech and the rights guaranteed to us by the Constitution, that's how we lose them. People in positions of power need to be brave and courageous and maybe put their country above their ability to make tens of millions of more dollars when the country has already enabled them to make tens of millions of dollars. And I have no doubt that the threat level on someone like Joe Rogan would be extraordinary in that situation. But at what point? Do we just accept that because of various pressures, people who failed to act and failed to do anything are absolved of all blame? I find it odd that we are now in a situation where we have actual Trump supporters frustrated and angry at Donald Trump for not doing enough to prevent the situation we find ourselves in right now, while still supporting all of the various media personalities and cultural outlets and aspects who are themselves inhibiting the awakening that's required in order to turn this situation around with the best possible results. But all that said, Rogan has kind of turned the corner on all of this, and it sounds like he's kind of guns blazing right now, which makes me hopeful that the timing just happens to be right he was keeping his powder dry and waiting for the absolute perfect moment to come out of hiding and just begin blasting away. Donald Trump highlighted this video on Truth Social. Joe Biden's been a goof his whole career. He's always been a goof. He's always been he's been caught lying so many times. Yeah. He's so full of there's so much evidence that he's corrupt. Just undeniable evidence of corruption. And the stuff with him and his son, and then the, the guy who just testified that was business partners with uh, with Hunter, yeah. who talked about all the different things that Joe was involved with. Evan Archer. Yeah. yeah. It's undeniable. And the fact that they that mainstream news is ignoring this, except for right-wing media, it's crazy. Now, Joe Rogan is right about all of that. 
it is undeniable that Joe Biden has been a goof for his entire career. He's been accused of heinous things. He has given terrible interviews. He was mentored in politics for decades by a Klan leader. He did the bidding of corporations based in Delaware, especially the credit card companies. He made it so that people could not declare bankruptcy when it comes to college loans. He wrote the 90s crime bills and takes responsibility for those. He's got the records of Tara Reid's allegations of sexual assault under lock and key. He has an extensive history right up to the present of making racist remarks. He has an extensive history right up to the present of sniffing and fondling children in public. And all of that is before we even get to anything related to Hunter Biden. So yes, Joe Biden has been a goof for a long time. Rogan's comments at the end of that, though, are absolutely wild. Everyone ignores this except right wing media. He knows it's true. Everybody knows it's true. And everyone ignores it except for right wing media. Now, it's good that Rogan is not ignoring it, not that he has pursued it with vim and vigor over the last three years, but at least he's talking about it now. If we apply that same idea, though, to election fraud, then Joe Rogan is on the side of people ignoring the issue, even though he was just castigating people ignoring the issue when it comes to Joe Biden being a goof. Now, I understand that nobody has the time to talk about absolutely everything. There are certainly subjects I could be covering more in depth on this show, and people will have their criticisms that I don't. I doubt that anyone would believe that I was covering something up on behalf of the global regime. But hey, people can have their own opinions. It's just odd to be in a position of criticizing people for ignoring things while you are wide open to that criticism about potentially the most important issue our country faces until essentially last week. And here were his comments. This was all, by the way, in an interview with Patrick Bet David who hosts a pretty good, if a bit normie, podcast and has wonderful guests on and has produced some really good interviews. But this right here is about as hard as I've heard Joe Rogan go after election fraud issues to date. How much election fraud do you think is real? Here we go, Joe. You want to go to election fraud? Yeah, because I don't think it's zero. No, it's no not way. zero. I think we could all agree it's not no zero. No way it's not zero. And we know yeah. that these voting machines can be fucked with. Yeah. And we know yeah. that there's some irregularities, uh, all that, that Carrie Lake stuff in mm -hmm. Arizona yeah. that they're trying to dismiss. It doesn't look like that's invalid. It looks like there's real fraud there. It looks like there's some real shenanigans there. At the very least, there was voting machines that weren't working properly, and it seems very suspicious that a lot of them were in Republican areas. There's a lot of shenanigans. There's a, and I think there's coordinated efforts to make sure that certain people get elected. I don't know how far they go, but I know it's not zero. So there we go. Joe Rogan has recognized that election fraud is real and potentially a real problem and potentially a widespread problem. Right now, we have a governor of Arizona that we are told is Katie Hobbs, who is absolutely illegitimate. And to the extent she is a real governor at all, that is a product of election fraud, of stolen and rigged elections. And while you might immediately understand that this would be hurtful to the 
Uniparty left members of Joe Rogan's audience. I can't imagine there's all that many of them. This most strikes at the members of the Uniparty right, the people supporting Ron DeSantis, because more than anyone, they have been comfortable with the narrative that election fraud in the United States of America is not a big factor in determining our leaders. Donald Trump lost fair and square. Kerry Lake lost fair and square. Donald Trump not only lost his own election, he lost elections in 2018 for Republicans and elections in 2022 for Republicans, including by Kerry Lake. All of it was Donald Trump's fault. All of it was MAGA's fault. Their argument hinges on the fact that Donald Trump cannot win elections and we must, beyond everything else, any principle, anything, prioritize winning the 2024 election. And in order to win the 2024 election, we're going to need a candidate that cannot win the 2024 primary. The entire argument against Donald Trump and against MAGA for the uniparty right hinges on our elections being free and fair, safe and secure, and the reported results reflecting the will and intent of the American voter. If that situation is not true, then them supporting any candidate other than Trump would be seen as not only traitorous and dishonest, but a grave moral failing. They would be seen quite clearly to be supporting the usurpation of the United States of America. And one might eventually wonder how they were benefiting from such a scenario and how it could possibly be worth it to them to turn this country over to the global regime that they say they actually oppose. Now, as I said, I don't know whether or not Rogan's going to turn out to be a good guy, whether or not this is some kind of info op or whether Joe Rogan might one day have to explain why he ignored election fraud for nearly three years. Maybe he's going to have to apologize for that, and maybe his audience will accept it. I doubt anyone is going to accept apologies on that basis after allowing this to proceed this way for nearly three years. But hey, that's not for me to decide, and we can't possibly know right now. What we can know is that now Joe Rogan has opened up a big space within the dominant public conversation, within the central narrative. People are going to be able to talk about election fraud because of this moment on Joe Rogan. And you can say it shouldn't be like that. I agree it shouldn't be like that. But for all of the standard issue villagers in Joe Rogan's audience, they have just been given permission to be taken seriously while discussing election fraud. The Ron DeSantis bros online can't just keep going around pretending that election fraud never happened. Our elections are safe and secure. Trump lost. Kerry Lake lost. The whole MAGA brand is toxic. Once people also understand that the elections are rigged and stolen. No one likes a cheater. No one likes people who take credit for victory after cheating. If everyone can see that the result was ill-gotten, that that win was undeserved, because of actual malign influence to then pretend that the results were legitimate rather than exposing the cheating and trying to reach a just outcome. Well, then that's obviously immoral. And when the issue at stake is the usurpation of the most powerful country in the world, that's the sort of thing that might be frowned upon. Now there was a 
very, very interesting interview on GB News out of the UK. That's like the Nigel Farage network. A lot of people are saying it's mainstream media. It is not mainstream media. It's a more direct parallel to something like Newsmax or OAN, and maybe not even quite that mainstream, maybe more like Real America's Voice. But it is still a fairly widely watched platform, and certainly this particular interview has gone viral. And I'm talking about an interview with a woman named Jan Halper Hayes. Now, the interview is about 10 minutes long, and I'm not going to play that right now. I imagine many of you have already seen this interview. If not, you'll have no problem finding it on Twitter or Telegram, and I'm sure many various other platforms. It should not be hard to find Jan Halper Hayes. And that interview has led to a lot of interesting discussion over the past few days. And we have reached a very strange point where people who are called conspiracy theorists by normies are calling other people conspiracy theorists for going along with what Jan Halper Hayes is saying here. Now, do I know that Jan Halper Hayes is accurate in all her statements? I absolutely do not know that and would never want to suggest otherwise. But on the other hand, she discussed quite a few things that people have proposed and theorized over the years. And as many people were in the process of dismissing the bulk of this interview, this appearance, Donald Trump went to Truth Social and shared the interview. Trump wrote on Truth Social, Dr. Jan Halper Hayes is fantastic. Everyone has got to watch her interview on election fraud with the poor sap who got taken apart by her. Thank you, Don Jr., for putting this masterpiece out for the public to see. Witch hunt. Now, in that Truth Social post, he links to the entire interview, which is about 10 minutes long, and I'm not going to play the whole thing. But here's a little clip of what Jan Halper Hayes had to say. You know, you know, I sit on a task force at the Department of Defense. And the thing is, they've got the goods. They've got the goods. And Trump knew that if he presented any of the goods early on, we'd have a civil war. That he really felt that the people needed to see how bad it could get. Now, let's be consistent with what we were saying before. Is Dr. Jan Halper Hayes in a position to know this information? Well, perhaps if we take her at her word that she is on a task force at the Department of Defense, she might have firsthand knowledge that what she just said is true and that Space Force does have it all on the election and presumably everything else. And many of us have thought that and argued that over the last few years. I think on some level, it's impossible to argue otherwise, just knowing the amount of data that is collected on each of us individually. The idea that election data could pass about the world without being picked up and collected by military intelligence in the United States, well, that's a little hard to believe. And is it housed at Space Force? Were they the ones who collected it? Well, we don't know. But we do know that Donald Trump was planning in advance, knowing about the presence of election fraud and that he's the one who set up the Space Force and that they deal with things like cybersecurity, satellites, information technology. So it certainly is not an outlandish claim, but 
She is not providing us the underlying information and that sort of evidence. So we would be appealing to authority when we believe her. Now, Donald Trump has seemingly supported her statements, but that statement wasn't even the most controversial or provocative statement of her interview. Now, if everything she said in the interview turns out to be entirely factual, then even calling them controversial or provocative is only a reflection of the information environment we are now in and the conditioning to which we've been subjected to deny certain things simply because we know that they will be seen as outlandish by a certain set of other people in whose eyes we want to retain credibility. She talks about the bankrupting of the U.S. corporation. She talks about the seizure of Vatican gold. She talks about how Donald Trump intended to end the so-called special relationship with the British crown and that that was shown optically to the world in the way he walked in front of the Queen of England. So when Trump reposts her, is he just creating chaos? Is he trying to throw a wrench in the gears of the public narrative? Is he trying to distract people? Is he trying to lead his biggest supporters astray? Now, I suppose all of those are possible, and I certainly don't pretend to know Donald Trump's thinking in this situation. But I can be relatively familiar with the effects his words have in the world. And now we've watched this situation develop for a couple of days so we can have a level of familiarity with the actual net effects of these words. And beyond all that, we can pretty much understand that Donald Trump did this intentionally for a reason and that he wanted to highlight all of the claims made in her video, no matter how quote unquote outlandish they're considered by people who are more or less addicted to the central narrative. Again, Donald Trump's words, Dr. Jan Halper Hayes is fantastic. Everyone has got to watch her interview on election fraud with the poor sap who got taken apart by her. And she did come back quite strong against the pure Normie villager who was anchoring the newscast and interviewing her. He went on, Thank you, Don Jr., for putting this masterpiece out for the public to see. Witch hunt. So is Dr. Halper Hayes fantastic? I don't know. I didn't even know she existed until last week, so I certainly can't vouch for her. I can say that she was in the Oval Office for the unveiling of the Space Force flag at the time the Space Force was launched. So it seems like she's been involved in that project for quite a while. Is she telling the truth about sitting on a DOD task force? Well, it would be awfully weird if she was lying about that and then Trump made her clip go viral. And I think that a distinction there is acceptable. It's at least worth considering that her speculation, perhaps her version of events on what has happened related to the election or to Vatican gold or to the U.S. corporation would be considered more opinions. Whether or not she is on a DOD task force is a relatively simple statement of fact that is either true or false. And if she was lying about that, I would really think that Donald Trump would not be reposting her at all, whereas he might just want the controversial conversation 
introduced to the public so that that conversation can begin and that this interview in particular was a good jumping off point for that. There are ways, I assume, that we could explain Trump's motivation in making this clip go viral that do not include him endorsing each and every claim she made. But if that's the case, and we're going to say that the things she's saying are irresponsible, then it would make sense to also then say that Trump resharing it is certainly as irresponsible. We can understand that and take all of that seriously, while also understanding that Trump's resharing of this is not in and of itself proof of any of the underlying claims, which would all require their own individual proof to move forward from the status they have now, which is just a claim from authority. If we are going to consider Jan Halper Hayes an authority, an authoritative source about these issues, that would be the only reason to take her word for it over some random person on Twitter. It would be her credential, her status as an authoritative source that would make us believe that this is true. Now, Trump's status as an authoritative source, boosting her as an authoritative source, does give her more weight as an authoritative source, but does not still constitute proof of each and every individual underlying claim. So while it's certainly exciting to see Donald Trump repost something like this, that is actually kind of earth shattering in its consequences. If it all is true, it's worth being reserved about it and applying the same intellectual standards that we apply to other things. Now, you'll know that I don't think government documentation, official documentation, news articles, etc., constitute hard and fast proof because it is just too easy to falsify all of those. Right now, we see misinformation being entered into the congressional record. We see censorship. We see propaganda. We cannot trust the official story on anything, even when that official story is supplied by our own government. In a hundred years from now, people are going to look back at CDC documentation, FDA documentation, the words of Democratic politicians, the words of uniparty right politicians, and they will think that that represents a real history of this time. If indeed the regime were to win and to write the history as they always have done throughout history, that will not make any of those words or any of those claims actually true, but they will all be officially documented, which is why it actually is important to have the epistemological conversation and to have conversations about what constitutes knowledge and truth. Because the domain of knowledge and truth is not limited to what appears in official documents. If the accumulation of so-called facts from official documents, when put together, cannot represent a possible reality and in fact is self-defeating, like internally inconsistent, then we can know immediately that there are problems in that documentation. Likewise, if all of what we know about the world implies the truth of an unknown claim or actually necessitates the truth of that unknown claim, that is actually stronger evidence for that claim of unknown status than official government documentation would be. And yes, understanding this 
opens us up to a much more complex and difficult informational environment, but it is nonetheless the one we live in. There is no singular authoritative source. I understand that we were taught to view the world in that way, and I understand that many people perceive it in that way. I understand that for many people, that is what represents evidence and the only thing that represents evidence. And then for those people, any claim that cannot be substantiated with that form of evidence is an irresponsible claim to make. But that isn't actually correct. That is only a mistake that has now become over time a habit. And as I discussed a few weeks ago, when talking about default explanations, the solution is never to revert to the default explanation just because we don't have the overwhelming evidence required to prove to an acceptable degree, which is relative to the person, that this new and alternate understanding of events is actually true. It's in fact insane to hold some high and unreachable standard of evidence to accept the truth of an alternate claim when you already know multiple elements of the default explanation absolutely must be false. It is not the mark of a serious person to accept the default explanation up to the point where it can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that some alternate competing explanation is true. There is absolutely no justification to support the default explanation we know to be wrong and unfounded just because it is the default explanation and just because we are risking our reputation and credibility by denying that default explanation or proposing an alternative explanation that is not seen to be fully and unequivocally proven particularly when someone is demanding that evidence, that proof fits a certain mold and requires official government documentation that we know for a fact can itself be false. But let's leave some of the more quote unquote extreme and controversial claims aside and just focus on the claim about Space Force having it all all of the evidence of election fraud, rigging, manipulation, theft from 2020 and other elections. Does Space Force have it all? Does someone have it all? Is it possible that our military intelligence has tracked the election in full and has all the data? Yes, that absolutely is possible. Is it possible that it was Space Force, the military branch created by Donald Trump to deal in the information space, in cyberspace, in outer space. Yes, that is entirely possible. And if an election was going to be tracked, you would imagine that they would have some role in tracking it. So all of that is not only possible, it is likely someone must have tracked all that data. In fact, you would expect that other countries around the world would have tracked that data as well to the extent they can get access to it. Knowing how open the Dominion and other election machines are to hacking and manipulation, and they are vulnerable to all of that as shown in Dominion's own documents as proven countless times, we can expect that there were a variety of intelligence agencies and other organizations tracking data from our elections. Right there with that alone, everybody should immediately think, oh, wow, our elections are 
not all that secure if that's possible. And of course, that's correct. And if all of that is not only likely true, but necessarily true based on what we know is possible and what we know about people's motivations and responsibilities, then all we would have to know at that point is that Donald Trump has access to that information and was not lying about it. That would be direct evidence of that election fraud that Jack Smith is telling us in his indictments that Trump is knowingly lying about based on the fact that these few authoritative sources who we cannot trust at all are telling him and the American public the truth. Trump is supposed to go by that rather than what he knows from his own military intelligence sources. That is what we are expected to believe. Now, I've talked many times on this podcast about how Xi Jinping, for instance, and Vladimir Putin, for instance, and various other world leaders have absolutely no doubt about whether or not Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. They know he did not. They know he is not a legitimate president. If they have definitive proof from tracking the election that Joe Biden did not receive 81 million real lawful American votes, then they have the ability to hold his illegitimacy over his head. They have the ability to wait for the most opportune time to use that information. And the fact that they have not done so yet is in itself quite interesting. But within the informational vacuum, when it comes to this direct evidence about election manipulation, the mainstream media, the central narrative has filled up all of that space. And that story tells all Americans, your elections are free and fair, safe and secure. The reported results reflect the will and intent of the American voter. Therefore, go on about your lives and do something else. Go see the Barbie movie. Go listen to some pop music. Hey, why don't you go ahead and cheer on some NBA players as they kneel for the national anthem? Distract yourself with the latest viral video. Just trust the experts and don't say anything that will dispute the central narrative. Otherwise, we might have to punish you. Now, for the last nine months, as I have tracked the Ron DeSantis shadow campaign and now the official Ron DeSantis campaign, I have been told that I am all sorts of terrible things for ever doubting Ron DeSantis's character and his commitment to the United States of America. He is the best guy. He is Trump, but better Trump without the baggage, Trump without the problems. He is the future of the party and you are threatening the future of the party by criticizing the Ron DeSantis campaign. And it's worth noting that I have spent most of that time criticizing the campaign and the campaign communications and not Ron DeSantis himself, because Ron DeSantis himself is just an avatar for something else. If he is kayfabe, then he is simply bait for the rhinos and the rhino donors so that they bring themselves all out into the light and we know exactly where everyone stands and wonderful. I have allowed for that possibility the whole time. If that is not the case, then he is an avatar for the global regime and their best attempt to get rid of Trump without having to do something more extreme. Just allow the public to choose Ron himself and we will move Donald Trump off to the side. That has not worked at all. 
But no matter what the truth ultimately turns out to be for Ron DeSantis himself, the character, the person, the politician, the governor of Florida, the shadow campaign and then the campaign for nine months had pretty much strictly avoided talking about the safety and security of American elections. It was a relatively easy litmus test when dealing with DeSantis simps online to ask them whether or not they believed Joe Biden received 81 million real American votes because that puts them in a very difficult position. If they say, yes, Joe Biden did receive 81 million real legal American votes while campaigning from his basement and showing up at events where there were little circles painted on the ground and he still could not attract 20 people where he would show up at events and to make it look like the crowd was packed. They had car rallies where just all Jeeps somehow it was all Jeeps were there and real people would sit in their cars and watch Joe Biden give a speech. It was an absolute embarrassment of a campaign, but we were still supposed to believe that everybody hated Donald Trump enough that 81 million real lawful American votes were cast by real people for Joe Biden. They would say, yes, Joe Biden won because Donald Trump was so unpopular even though Donald Trump increased his 2016 vote total by 20%, something that has never even come close to happening in American presidential election history. But at least they're saying that. At least they really believe that, and they hope, they think that that story will stand up to scrutiny over the long haul, and they will be seen as smart and informed to have taken that position Understanding that if Joe Biden was able to beat Donald Trump by that much with how absolutely inept and deflated Joe Biden's campaign was, well, then we simply do need someone else to run. Because if Trump can't beat that weakened Joe Biden, well, then he can't beat anybody and we're going to need somebody else. If Joe Biden actually accomplished a win of that magnitude, then they would be right. Donald Trump should be moved to the side because he is clearly not capable of beating even that weakened man. There just isn't enough Trump support out there. The only problem is there's no actual reason to believe that Joe Biden got anywhere near 81 million real lawful American votes. And every bit of evidence suggests that he did not. They also refuse to let anyone check. If the reported election results are to be believed, then we should believe Donald Trump's as well. That would indicate that he had 75 million votes in 2016 when we were not in the midst of a global pandemic. There were about 131 million votes cast. So if Donald Trump went up by 20 percent to 75 million, then there would be 12 million fewer votes that Joe Biden could actually get in his count. And that would have left him at about 54 million votes. And that is nowhere close to 81 million real lawful American votes. In fact, it required the voter turnout to jump by over 20% to substantiate the total turnout in the middle of a very deadly pandemic. And so they told us it was simply mail-in ballots that made all the difference, even though there is no proof any time in history that universal mail-in balloting actually increases turnout anywhere near those levels. So if you are going to support a candidate other than Donald Trump, you have put yourself in a serious catch 22 in relation 
to election fraud. Either you have to assert positively that Joe Biden really did get those votes, or you have to accept the fact that an election was rigged and stolen and you are siding with someone other than the person it was rigged and stolen from. And when it then just so happens that that candidate you're supporting has the backing of all the people involved in the rigging and stealing of that election, and then the cover-up to follow, the narrative cover-up that convinces the American public everything is okay, well, then you start looking a whole lot like a traitor. And for nine months, they were able to cover all of that up. They talked about wokeness. They talked about the ability to win. They talked about COVID and the COVID vaccines and tried to pin all of that on Donald Trump even though Donald Trump spent all of COVID telling the public what they needed to know at every point for people to be able to make their own decisions. The DeSantis supporters, by and large, were people who went along with their uniparty left controlled opposition counterparts in taking COVID very, very seriously. Did they believe in masking as hard as the uniparty left? No, but they believed it was probably okay. And that regardless, it was worth being polite to everyone else and making everyone else feel comfortable. People who promoted the vaccine on their public channels and told everyone it was their responsibility to get it so that we could reach herd immunity and end the pandemic, even though that wasn't possible, are now blaming Donald Trump for that same vaccine that they took and promoted themselves. They tried all of these arguments, but never brought up the election fraud. They denied election fraud. They avoided answering the question, do you believe that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes? Some of them would even admit to knowing that Biden didn't do it, but they would say, well, all that matters is winning. And Trump has proven that he can't win in this system. And they thought that would work for a lot of people. And I imagine that for some people, it actually did work. But that is a horrible, horrible argument. They are then just saying, we need the guy who can win a rigged and stolen election. The regime will not steal the election from our guy, from Ron DeSantis. The people who steal elections will allow our guy to win. Therefore, we need to promote that guy as much as possible so that he can win a rigged election. As if after winning that rigged election that the regime allows him to win, he will immediately transform completely and become the threat to the regime that Donald Trump obviously represents and that MAGA obviously represents. All of the bad things about MAGA will be eliminated now that Donald Trump is gone and now that the cultish supporters, the cultists no longer have their cult leader, all that stuff will be gone. Only the good stuff will remain. And all of that good stuff, of course, is embodied by Ron DeSantis. And that's why him winning a rigged election will actually just be best for everyone and the regime will allow it. So let's all just go back to normal. Let the uniparty right win. Leave the power structure in place despite fighting it for the last seven or eight years. That's the only way things will work out as they should. Now, all of that is absolutely ridiculous. It requires dishonesty. It requires ignoring obvious facts about reality in order to justify and rationalize a position taken through pure incentive and pragmatism. Help get rid of Donald Trump 
and reap the rewards the regime will provide for doing them that very important favor. It is not hard to see why they avoided talking about elections for all this time. Well, all of that has finally come to a head. At the end of last week and over the weekend, Ron DeSantis has gotten on board with the idea that Joe Biden really did receive 81 million real lawful American votes. And the website conservativetreehouse.com ran this headline on Friday. Megadonor tells DeSantis to get moderate or else. Within hours, DeSantis dismisses 2020 quote unquote stolen election theories as false. And Sundance from Conservative Treehouse linked this article from Reuters, DeSantis's biggest donor warns he may stop funding campaign. Hotel entrepreneur Robert Bigelow, the biggest individual donor to a group supporting Ron DeSantis's presidential bid, told Reuters on Friday he will not donate more money unless the Florida governor attracts new major donors and adopts a more moderate approach. The comments by Bigelow, who gave $20 million to the pro-DeSantis Never Back Down Super PAC in March, underscored donor concerns about the Florida governor's struggling campaign, which has been unable to make a dent in former President Donald Trump's huge lead for the 2024 Republican nomination. He does need to shift to get moderates. He'll lose if he doesn't. Extremism isn't going to get you elected, Bigelow said in an interview adding that he had communicated these concerns to DeSantis's campaign. When asked which specific policies Bigelow did not support, Bigelow cited only DeSantis signing in April a bill passed by the Florida legislature banning abortions after six weeks, a move that came after Bigelow had donated $20 million. Reuters notes that a source familiar with the governor's strategy, which means basically anybody, told Reuters that, quote, donors don't set policy for the governor and they never will. The article notes that Bigelow still plans on supporting DeSantis, saying, I think he's the best guy for the country. But there's something interesting to note at the end of the article. And again, this is from Friday. Bigelow said he had told DeSantis's campaign manager, Janera Peck, that DeSantis needed to be more moderate to have a chance. Asked how Peck reacted, Bigelow said, laughing, there was a long period of silence where I thought maybe she had passed out. But I think she took it all in, Bigelow added, describing Peck as a, quote, very good campaign manager. And that's particularly interesting because today we got the news that Janera Peck is now out as DeSantis's campaign manager and has been replaced with a man named James Uthmeyer who is the chief of staff in DeSantis's governor's office. And this is now being considered, I guess, the fourth reboot of Ron DeSantis's absolute abomination of a campaign. So things are not going well for Ron, but we had spent the nine previous months mostly avoiding that election conversation. I was pointing it out. Maybe some others were. But Ron and his campaign were kind of being given a free pass by everyone on the election fraud issue and the implications of the position they had taken because denying that the 2020 election was stolen is the official story. That's the position people are supposed to take. That's the one that is publicly accepted to express. And if we just assume that everybody knows that and everybody agrees that's right then it's very, very difficult 
to have the critique I've been making land properly with a broad audience. People say it must be something else. Ron DeSantis is simply avoiding this issue because it's not relevant right now. Or Ron is kayfabe. Or, well, we got to let the campaign just play out. People have to be given an opportunity to make their own choices this election cycle, despite the fact that the last election cycle, for all intents and purposes, is not over. It is still under contest. It has never not been under contest, despite the narrative about how Trump lost all these court cases. As Jan Halper Hayes noted in her interview, he actually won two out of three where evidence was presented and on the rest, the cases were dismissed on procedural grounds, often due to standing. The publicly accepted narrative is that those court decisions mean that the underlying claims of election fraud are therefore false, even though the court did not examine evidence and just dismiss these cases on procedural grounds. Unless you actually check that out and find out those particular facts, then you will go along with the central narrative and be like, well, that must be right. You can't just assume that 50 or 60 courts are compromised or corrupt. And if you don't actually check, then it's really easy to ignore the fact that these cases were dismissed on procedural grounds, not decided against Trump on the evidence or the legal arguments. But now, finally, the Ron DeSantis position on election fraud in America has been brought into the light by Ron himself. And as Sundance over at Conservative Treehouse notes, it came just hours after he was pressured by a major donor to go more moderate, appeal to the center. You're clearly not going to get that MAGA base who you've spent the last nine months insulting and ridiculing and disrespecting. So maybe there are some centrist Democrats on the uniparty left who are sick of Joe Biden and don't want to get into Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s conspiracy theories. Maybe there are some people in the middle of the country who might find Ron DeSantis appealing as the anti-Trump alternative because Biden is simply too old and all of the other choices are simply unacceptable. And what better way to show the uniparty left controlled opposition that you can be on their side than to deny election fraud and support the system remaining in place, hopefully forever. This is the article from Friday in the New York Times. DeSantis dismisses Trump's 2020 election theories as false. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida said that claims about the 2020 election being stolen were false, directly contradicting a central argument of former President Donald J. Trump and his supporters. The comments went further than Mr. DeSantis typically goes when asked about Mr. Trump's defeat. The governor has often tried to hedge, refusing to acknowledge that the election was fairly conducted. In his response on Friday, Mr. DeSantis did not mention Mr. Trump by name, saying merely that such theories were unsubstantiated, but the implication was clear. All those theories that were put out did not prove to be true, Mr. DeSantis said in response to a reporter's question after a campaign event at a brewery in northeast Iowa. And DeSantis has been going around Iowa pretending that Iowa loves him, even though he can only get 10 or 20 or 30 people to his events, maybe a few hundred on a good day. He is forced to at least pretend because if he doesn't pretend, then it will be obvious that he has no chance. And then they would actually have to go to someone else 
to replace Ron DeSantis as the uniparty right establishment candidate, hoping that they can create a narrative and enough narrative momentum in order to be able to rig an election for that candidate in the primaries. It is also very odd that a candidate who is being propelled by a political action committee called Never Back Down often tries to hedge about the most important political issue in our country, one so important that if it is not solved, means we don't really have a country anymore. What kind of leadership refuses to address an issue like that in full and at length if Ron DeSantis believes that the elections in America are safe and secure, he should be happy to go out and make that argument in full and convince all Donald Trump's MAGA supporters that they have been misled and that he is right and present the moral case, the intellectual case, the evidentiary case that Trump and his supporters have been wrong this entire time and that the mainstream media and the uniparty whose agenda they are voiced to has been right the whole time. But Ron won't make that case. The political pragmatism says he needs that MAGA base and can't tell them that they've been fooled and they've been lied to and that all of them are wrong. It is totally okay in this extreme case to avoid telling the truth because political pragmatism demands the lie. A man of principle like Ron DeSantis knows that it is important to sacrifice one's principles if one wants to be allowed to win a rigged election on behalf of the regime. The New York Times goes on. The more aggressive response comes a day after Mr. Trump was arraigned on charges related to his plot to overturn the 2020 election. As he has courted Mr. Trump's voters, Mr. DeSantis has blasted the prosecution as politically motivated and has said he did not want to see Mr. Trump charged. His new comments suggest that Mr. Trump's legal peril may have altered his political calculation. Later in the day, Mr. DeSantis suggested that he would pardon Mr. Trump should the former president be convicted in the election case. I don't think it's in the best interest of the country to have a former president that's almost 80 years old go to prison. He told reporters at a campaign stop in Waverly, Iowa, it was an answer that by invoking Mr. Trump's age also served to highlight the contrast with Mr. DeSantis, who is 44. And just like Ford pardoned Nixon, sometimes you've got to put this stuff behind you and we need to start focusing on things having to do with the country's future. Mr. DeSantis said and added, this election needs to be about January 20th, 2025, not January 6th, 2021. And we are supposed to pretend that this is strong leadership. We need to start focusing on things having to do with the country's future. And apparently rigged and stolen elections are not one of those things because the elections would only be rigged and stolen in this one instance because Donald Trump is an extreme case. And I guess... Kerry Lake is an extreme case too. And I mean, you can't imagine that if they had this massive system of election fraud where they could steal these elections in broad daylight and people would just accept it, that they would only use it in these two instances in these most extreme cases. Well, I mean, they would use it in any extreme case. Now, 
by principle, we wouldn't want to steal elections, of course, because then it would be much harder for us to say that we are saving democracy by, you know, arresting and imprisoning people and censoring them and making everything saturated with propaganda at all times. But we can't be expected to uphold those principles in an extreme case. And we have already designated this as an extreme case. So this is just where we find ourselves now. Here's how the New York Times rounds things out. His remarks about the 2020 election have previously been far more circumspect. He generally uses such questions on the subject to talk about electability, lament the quote-unquote culture of losing that has developed among Republicans under Mr. Trump's leadership, and boast about the security of Florida's elections. Now, all of those claims are in themselves falsehoods as well. The electability thing is absurd. Donald Trump is far more popular in this country than Ron DeSantis, not only head to head against Ron, but head to head against Biden. If you're going to trust the polls in any way, shape or form, they suggest the same thing. But I don't think that we need to look to polls to know any of that. The comments on the culture of losing are absolutely absurd because over the last 30 plus years, the Republican establishment has given away virtually everything of importance in this country to the regime. The uniparty right and the uniparty left are not different in the overall agenda they're pursuing. They are only different in their marketing and who they're marketing to. It does not matter, for instance, if they claim to be pro-life while abortion continues to expand. That means that the movement on the right is losing. Conservatives are losing. If all the values conservatives claim to support begin to systematically disappear over the course of 30 years that the establishment is in control, then the establishment are the ones responsible for establishing the culture of losing. Donald Trump not only came in and defeated all of the establishment political dynasties, including the Clintons. He's the one who got constitutional conservative justices on the Supreme Court. He's the one who actually created wins on all of these important conservative political agenda items. And then he increased his vote total by 20%. Virtually everyone understands that that election was rigged and stolen. So the culture of losing actually describes the conservative GOP establishment and elite, not Donald Trump. The Donald Trump era and the MAGA movement are the exception to the culture of losing that Ron DeSantis and the establishment continue to push. And then the idea that Florida's election integrity is up to an acceptable standard is also utterly absurd. If Ron DeSantis wanted to prove that to the country, he could simply demand full and transparent forensic audits of Florida's elections and share the results with the public. He could prove that Florida's elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the results reflect the will and intent of Florida's voters. But he doesn't do that. In a race he was expected to win by five points, well, he won by 20, surprising pretty much everyone. And then taking extra credit for that massive win, even though he didn't turn out as many Republicans to vote for him, the hero of Florida, then turned out for Donald Trump in 2020 
while also claiming that people from all across the country were coming to Florida because of DeSantis. And if that's not crazy enough, we just saw the mayoral race in Jacksonville go to a Democrat in the age of Ron. So we have people moving from all around the country for Ron DeSantis and his brand of conservatism, his governing style in Florida. They all move to Florida for Ron DeSantis and then don't show up to vote for Ron DeSantis in the same numbers they showed up for Donald Trump. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And if Ron is so popular, how does a Democrat mayor win in a 2023 Florida election? There are election integrity problems in Florida, just as there are everywhere else. The system exists in every state in this country, and Ron DeSantis has done nothing or next to nothing to fix it. All he did was create a state board so that the state would then take responsibility for telling the public, hey, this election was fine again. We busted one or two people trying to pull a fast one with 10 or 20 votes, and uh, we nailed them. We even get the small time people and because we can get the small time people, well, surely we would have noticed if there was a big problem and then we would have gotten those people trust us. That's been Ron's response to election fraud in Florida. He doesn't talk about it. He hasn't talked about it for nearly three years now. He created a new state agency and that's about it. And we are supposed to pretend that not only is he the best governor who has ever existed. His personal popularity in Florida, according to the reported results of the election, means that the elections are safe and secure under his watch. The Times says on Friday, Mr. DeSantis did criticize aspects of the 2020 election, including changes to voting procedures made because of the coronavirus pandemic. But he specifically dismissed one particularly far-fetched theory that Venezuela, now led by President Nicolas Maduro, hacked voting machines. It was not an election that was conducted the way I think that we want to, but that's different than saying Maduro stole votes or something like that, he said. Those theories, you know, prove to be unsubstantiated. Well, that's not the theory. That has never been the theory. The theory is that the same system developed and used in Venezuela in 2004 is the one being used in America. And the factual basis of that theory is indisputable. That is all real. No one is suggesting that Nicolas Maduro rigged and stole the American election. No one is suggesting that anywhere at any point. So this is an obvious straw man, a fake just made up on the spot straw man argument. No one is making that claim. So defeating that claim is utterly irrelevant. And it seems that Ron DeSantis is sticking with the story. This is him on the Today Show. Yes or no, did Donald Trump lose the 2020 election? Whoever puts their hand on the Bible on January 20th every four years uh, is the winner. Okay, but respectfully... You did not clearly answer that question. And if you can't give a yes or no because on whether or not Trump lost, then how well, can of course, you? No, of, of course he lost. Uh, Trump uh, lost the 2020 uh, election. Of course. Okay. Uh, Joe Biden's the president. Now, that little clip is much worse on video than audio because you can actually see Ron looking very nervous. And of course, jittery as always, his head is moving all over the place. 
it looks like he understands he's being put in a bad position where no matter what answer he gives, it's going to be a bad one. But that's the sort of thing that happens when you abandon your principles and you become willing to lie about the most important issues in the world in order to advance yourself and your career in politics. Was the election stolen? Well, it doesn't matter because Donald Trump lost. Joe Biden put his hand on the Bible on January 20th. Therefore, Trump lost. And it doesn't matter if it was legitimate or not, stolen or not. It just is what it is. And if we want to get rid of this culture of losing, what we need to do is accept losses even when they're obviously rigged and stolen. Now, these are totally untenable, unprincipled, immoral positions to take for Ron DeSantis and for anyone. If this is what Ron DeSantis really believes about the election, he is absolutely unqualified and disqualified from holding any leadership position in this country. This is one of the most unprincipled things we could ever witness in politics, because surely Ron DeSantis cannot believe that Joe Biden actually received 81 million real lawful American votes to know that and then accept that some amount of fraud, whether it be a little bit or a whole lot, is totally okay. We actually don't need to pursue that at all because the system has advanced itself. Therefore, we cannot question the system without threatening our democracy. And that is just a bridge too far. Is democracy threatened by election theft? Well, only in principle. This is an extreme case, so we just have to, you know, do what we have to do to make sure that the extreme case is taken care of. And then we can revert to our prior principle and take a principled stand that any cheating in an election would be a real threat to our democracy rather than pretending someone questioning an obviously stolen election is the threat to democracy. Sometimes these norms just simply have to be reversed. And we cannot allow our deeply held principles to become so rigid that we are unwilling to absolutely violate those principles whenever it becomes necessary, whenever we deem there to be an extreme case. Now, the timing on all of this is remarkable. We have Donald Trump being indicted by the special counsel, Jack Smith, because he knowingly lied about the 2020 election, and that threatened our democracy. Throughout the discovery process and then throughout the trial, one would have to imagine that the evidence about election fraud will be presented because if Donald Trump's team of attorneys can prove that not only was Donald Trump not knowingly lying, but that his claims were in fact true, well, the case completely blows up at that point, and so it must be part of their strategy to present that evidence. These indictments intersect with the claims of election fraud. Now the subject is being broached by none other than Joe Rogan, the man with the biggest platform in all of media. That could signal or predict a massive change in public sentiment related to claims of election fraud. We have Jan Halper Hayes out there saying that Space Force absolutely has it all, and then Donald Trump amplifying those statements, 
and in opposition to the advancement of all of those narrative elements related to election fraud, we have Ron DeSantis, the candidate, whether kayfabe or not, of the GOP establishment elite, now making clearly the positive claim that the election was fine. The theories about what went wrong were unsubstantiated, and it's time to move on. He's saying it loud and clear, and his supporters, and of course, the DeSantis simps and his comm team are going along with all of it. They are all now in the position where they have to say that Joe Biden really did receive 81 million real lawful American votes, which is making them all look like fools. I imagine they were probably pretty happy with the fact that the campaign and the candidate were ignoring that subject entirely because then they could ignore it. They didn't have to answer for what Ron DeSantis was saying and doing relative to election fraud. They got a free pass. They got to skate on that one for nine months now. They didn't really have to answer, but now they do because Ron has said it himself. So either they can say, no, I believe Ron DeSantis is wrong about this critical issue. And in doing so, totally invalidate any justification for Ron's campaign in the first place, or they have to back him up on those claims, which are totally untenable. This narrative is only moving in one direction. It's toward the truth about our elections. And at the moment that truth is revealed and the public accepts the reality of what our elections are in this country, this entire position that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, that the reported results reflect the will and intent of the voters, well, that goes up in smoke. And then everyone who supported it and has covered it up for the last three years is going to look like a traitor to this country, like they are supporting the usurpation. They are going to look anti-American. They are not going to be able to claim that there was not enough proof, there was not enough evidence, because the truth is that they didn't bother checking and that the burden of proof and evidence are not on the side claiming that the election is illegitimate. The burden of proof is on the side making the claim that Joe Biden received the most votes in all of election history in an election held during a very deadly pandemic that saw turnout rise by a full 20%, 27 million votes, and that the most popular president ever elected couldn't draw people to any campaign events for the entire campaign. And the excuse, of course, for all of that was COVID. So the election fraud story is coming around again in a major way. And this isn't all. The Gateway Pundit launched a massive expose on Michigan election corruption. Kanakoa the Great summarized it this way on Twitter. A recently released report from Michigan law enforcement unveils a concerning voter fraud incident involving a group funded by Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. This organization operating in multiple swing states is implicated in submitting fraudulent voter registrations during October 2020. Following a raid, Michigan authorities discovered caches of prepaid gift cards, firearms equipped with silencers, and disposable burner phones. Throughout the 2020 election period, these Democratic election committees provided more than $4 million to this particular organization. Biden for president, $450,000. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, $2,117,605. The DNC Services Corporation, 
$31,856, and the Democratic Party of Iowa, $493,100. The investigation was initiated following the observation of a Muskegon, Michigan clerk who noticed an individual depositing 8,000 to 10,000 completed voter registration applications at the city office on October 8th, 2020. This same individual returned multiple times, registering an additional 2,500 voters. Alarmingly, many of these registrations displayed identical handwriting with fraudulent addresses and phone numbers. Additionally, signatures did not match those on file with Michigan's Secretary of State. And that's not the only incoming election news we have. I mentioned a week or so ago that Ken Paxton posted on Twitter, Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas, about how the Harris County election integrity cases were about to begin. Those cases have begun. And yesterday we get this from Reuters. Chief of Texas's largest county takes medical leave for depression. Lena Hidalgo, chief executive of the third largest U.S. county and the largest one in Texas, has checked into a medical facility outside the state to be treated for clinical depression, she said on Monday. So Lena Hidalgo has left Texas to deal with mental illness. And naturally, we wish her the best and hope for her speedy recovery. Hidalgo, a Democrat elected in 2018 to lead the county of 4.9 million residents, has battled Republican state officials over election administration and police funding. Last November, she won re-election as Harris County judge against a well-funded political novice with a slim margin of about 17,000 votes. Lena Hidalgo is fairly widely known as one of the most corrupt Democrat Communist Party officials in the country. Hidalgo has also clashed with the county's district attorney, Kim Og, and in June cursed during a public commissioner's meeting in a discussion related to Og. Three of Hidalgo's former aides have been indicted for helping steer COVID outreach contracts to a party consultant. I am one of the over 21 million American adults that is suffering from clinical depression, Hidalgo said in a public letter, adding she was diagnosed and entered a treatment facility last month. She hopes to resume a normal schedule by early September. Now, I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist and suggest that she might have left the state and dropped off the radar due to anything with this election fraud case. I mean, sure, she is an extraordinarily corrupt official directly involved in rigging Texas's elections and then covering that up. And she did win by a very small margin of only 17,000 votes over a total political novice, but I'm sure there's no connection whatsoever. And the stress of her job probably has just gotten to her a little bit and we can simply feel sympathy for her and move on. But it does seem like all of these election fraud issues are coming to a head. The public narrative is being refocused on election fraud issues from 2020 and 2022. And at some point, you gotta think the public is gonna catch on. Except then you remember that the public has known the whole time. There is no one out there who doesn't know that the 2020 election was highly questionable. They can deny it all they want. They can believe that all of the claims have been debunked. They can say those things until they are blue in the face, but none of them are true. And everybody knows it. No one 
actually believes Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. They just all agreed that it was okay in this instance to reverse the norms, the standards, the morals, the principles. In fact, them being good, responsible people knew that the only way to preserve those norms, those standards, those morals, and those principles was to violate them this time in the extreme case, because Donald Trump and MAGA are just too dangerous. Now, I know that this was an exceptionally long episode, but I missed yesterday. So I wanted to make up for that as much as I could. Plus, I wanted to go through all of this stuff because something really does seem to be happening with the election fraud narrative. Maybe this is just a series of reruns. We don't get all the way there this time. And then we get another series of reruns in a month or so. That's how these things go. But this is some pretty big stuff bubbling up to the surface right now. These are things that the central narrative cannot avoid. It has to be incorporated somehow, even if it is just through debunkings. People are going to be reminded that these issues cannot be avoided forever. But I am planning on having an episode out tomorrow. Thursday might be a bit tough. Friday might be a bit tough. I'm going to try to get one up in there. Saturday, I think I'll be able to make up for one. And so we might just have to play the game of fewer episodes, but much longer ones. Hey, stop in the middle and make it two on your own. But bear with me and we will be back to a normal schedule within the next couple of weeks. So I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash imyourmoderator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!